I was told that Steve has the gift of announcements, and now I've seen it in person. It's been a joy to be here the last few days, and uh, names do not stick with me easily, but they're slowly starting to to stay. You've been kind and welcoming, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to be here. I could say more, but our focus right now is the Word of God, and our focus is our Creator, and it's to the Word that we turn. And uh, I do that with brothers and sisters that I have known very little, but isn't it wonderful that we share a common faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, and that gives us a basis, a starting point. So I'm going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and part of chapter 2, I invite you to turn there. The books of First and Second Samuel show us heroes. There are great men, mighty men in these books that really were originally one book. But First Samuel begins with a woman who has nothing. And I would like to read our text before considering it with you. Before I read, though, I'm going to read a longer portion. I'm going to read all the way till the end of Hannah's prayer in chapter 2. You could walk through the woods and study each tree one by one, verse by verse. You could fly high above and get the, the view from the sky. We're going to do something between that tonight. And I'm trying to, to cover a story and you have to decide when do you begin and when do you end. Well, it's easy to begin at the chapter 1, verse 1, but where do you stop? And I'd like to go all the way through Hannah's prayer. As I read this text, I want you to be thinking, why does the book start with Hannah, a barren woman? Why does it begin there? Because it's going to turn to, to, to Samuel, uh, a great man, a prophet, a uh, who, who really, his moment matters, but his time was fleeting. It was quickly over. And he could not control where the nation went at the end of his time. It's going to turn then to Saul, where we, we would see, if we had the time to look at it, that when left to oneself, life gets very ugly. After that, it turns to, to David, but even David, who is a man of faith, has a kind of mixed faith. It's not a perfect faith, and that brings mixed results. So those three men become very prominent as the book begins, but it starts with Hannah. It starts with a woman from the hills. It starts with a woman who cannot have children. And so be asking the question, why does it begin with her? And I'd like to start reading in in chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her 
because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. And she continued praying before the Lord. As she did this, Eli observed her mouth Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him, only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. 
The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He makes them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will, exalt, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah returned home to Ramah. And the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Why begin with Hannah? We see by the end of this passage that we've arrived at Samuel. But it doesn't start there. Is Hannah merely background material? Is she merely a setup? Whatever the situation, God is working among his people. God is always active. He's never passive. He is accomplishing his will. He is working within, among, and through his people. But the story begins with nothing. And maybe you hear that and you say, that's a little bit of an overstatement. But I want you to understand Hannah's situation. How does the text describe Hannah in the beginning of chapter 1. Twice the text says that who had closed her womb? It was the Lord. And if there was anything that Hannah wanted, what was it? A child. She did not want to be the barren wife. You see other facts about her in the first couple of verses. She's not the only wife of her husband. There's another. But you also uh, learn that they, that they come once a year, verse 3, year by year, this is a pattern, to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. We could say, no, Hannah doesn't have absolutely nothing. She does have something. She has a husband who leads his family on a yearly basis to worship. And that is definitely something. But within this context, we learn that the other wife makes life terrible for Hannah. The other wife has several children, and every year this family journeys to Shiloh, and every year, verse 7, as often as Hannah goes up to the house of the Lord, this other wife provokes her. Now, as we read, it was clear, I hope, that Hannah was a woman of faith. So you would expect that she was looking forward to this time of going to Shiloh for this special occasion of worship. But now this good thing is being twisted, is it not? Because now it is a particularly sharp occasion for the other wife to rub it in. And as a result, verse 7, therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. The, the not eating is important because as the family would go to sacrifice, that was also a time of feasting. So some of the meat would be given to others, but then the family would be able to stop and enjoy the sacrifice. 
and yet Hannah is so, so torn up by what's happening that she cannot even eat. And so you see Elkanah talking to her in verse 8, asking what is going on. You could take Elkanah's words in a, probably several different directions. You could try to understand them very positively. Here's a man wanting to understand his wife. Hannah, I've done all that I can. You know that I love you. You know that I provide for you. What more can I do? Is not my love enough? But isn't there the other side of this? Like, Elkanah, don't you get it? Don't you hear those words from your other wife to Hannah along the way? How are you missing all that happens? And that's one of the glories, and perhaps for those of you that love to dig in, frustrations as you study the Old Testament. You'd love to know more. But here's Elkanah asking the question, am I not enough? Well, we find that his counseling session is not sufficient. And why can we say that? Because in verse 9, after they had had that time of family feasting, Hannah gets up and she goes, and she's still deeply distressed, verse 10. And so her heart is not settled. The pain is very sharp. As a result, she decides to vow a vow to God. And notice, what, do, what kind of son does she long for? If God meets her request and grants a child, grants a son, is she asking for that son to be great? Is she asking for that son to be strong or Influential. No, she's asking for a son so that she can give that son back to do what? To serve. You see this woman's faith over and over again. Well, as she's pouring her heart out to God, there's another man who perhaps misunderstands her. Well, we know he misunderstands her. Maybe you're optimistic about it, Cana. Maybe you're not. But Eli takes her to be a drunken woman. He's sitting there. He's too old to be actively involved in the priestly duties. He would have been under forced retirement, but he's still around. And he's observing, and he assumes that she is drunk. And so he rebukes her. But what I'd like us to see is at the end. She goes through all of this. She hears back from Eli. She responds. Eli now blesses her, go in peace, and the God of Israel grants your petition that you have made to him. She is kind in response. But at the end, verse 18, then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Was it no longer sad? Because she had now a definite answer. She knew with certainty that she was going to have a son. You can maybe think through that a little bit, but I, at the very least, can say she doesn't have a son yet. And yet she is able now to turn and to eat. Her face is no longer bearing this sadness. There was help that she had, I think, in the prayer time, being able to leave that with God, cast her care before God, and present it to him. But she is not the hero of the book of Samuel. Even the human heroes are not the true heroes of the book of Samuel. Samuel is showing that God is working to build his kingdom. The true focus of the book of Samuel 
is God himself. And so we need to ask, what's going on here? What, what is happening and why does God begin this book with Hannah? But isn't that often how God begins his work? Doesn't he often begin when his people are at their lowest or when we could say that when they are empty, when they are broken, when they are weak, when they have nothing? That is where the story of Samuel begins, with nothing, with a barren woman. And that is how God often works. What is one thing that we could say Hannah does have? She has faith. She is turning to God even in this, even knowing, as the text says, I think we can safely assume this is Hannah's view as well, the Lord had closed her womb, and yet it's to God that she turns. This is often how God works. Are you here sitting with nothing? Or maybe it's more accurate to say sitting here missing what you most long for. Maybe it's something for which you've prayed year after year after year. And I would encourage you, you are not the first believer to experience that. You will not be the last. God often works by bringing us low so that we have to take the next step by faith. There's another man who wrote a helpful book on this passage, and he says, God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. Our hopelessness and our helplessness are no barrier to his work. Indeed, our utter incapacity is often the prop he delights to use for his next act. When his people are without strength, without resources, without hope, without human gimmicks, then he loves to stretch his hand forth from heaven. Nothing does not mean that God is absent. Nothing does not mean that God has left you and turned away. Nothing does not mean that God's plan has fallen apart and now you have to pick up the pieces. Often, nothing is the beginning as God calls his people to respond by faith, to live by faith, and he works through that. And so I think the place we begin as far as absorbing this passage is to realize that even though this woman was missing what she most desired, she continued to turn back to God, to trust in him, to lay her soul before him, even with others misunderstanding her, and perhaps at their best offering help, but still helpless themselves to change anything. Here is a woman who continues to trust in God. And that is the context for the beginning of the books of Samuel. Maybe she's a nobody, but she is a nobody with faith in God. And she continues to trust in God. Do not despise the God who forces you to live by faith. Isn't it a gift that we have here, a lady who has not turned bitter against God? She continues to live by faith. And I encourage you to see as the text goes on, she continues to worship. She's part of a family that worships. Verse 19, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. And there are other terms here that show that 
They were making much of God. If you look then down at verse 21, again, the family continues this pattern of going for the yearly sacrifice, paying the vows that they had promised to God. Down in verses 24 and 25, when when Hannah is ready to bring in Samuel, she doesn't just then offer back Samuel to God. She brings a very costly sacrifice. Down in verse 27, you have more of, of the focus turning towards God. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition. This is giving credit to God. Then verse 20, at the end of the chapter, there's worship there at the closing. And I would just encourage you to see that God is working as his people continue worshiping. And that worship was happening before God met the need of providing the son, and it continued after God provided Samuel. Is the whole nation doing that? I don't think so. But this family is continuing to worship God. This woman is continuing to worship God before God ever does anything to change her situation. There's also an emphasis on the, on the idea of asking. In verse 20, I have asked for him from the Lord. If you go down to verses 27 and 28, there's been some smoothing out in the translation, but uh, one guy provided a, a more literal rendering of verses 27 and 28 just to bring out the asking term. And we could say, for this child I prayed and God gave me my asking, which I asked from him, and I also have given back what was asked to God. All the days he lives, he is one that is asked for God. And so there's a, this repetition of the term for ask. She's very aware that it is God who has provided Samuel. She takes what could be up to three years to wean him and at the end of that time brings him in. There's some debate whether she brings one bull or three, but either way she brings a very costly sacrifice with her. And she gives this child back to God. But that's not the end of this episode here. Then we have the prayer from Hannah. And oh, did she pray. I believe that verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2 really give you the, the microscope to use, or maybe I could say the pattern to use for understanding the rest of the book. As you go to chapter after chapter, I just encourage you, if you ever study the, the book of, I can at least say for First Samuel, every once in a while go back to this prayer from Hannah and say, okay, where might this have been pointed towards already in the prayer of Hannah? I, I think these 10 verses give you a preview of what is to come. But they're also personal. Verses one to three. I mean, think about this. Let's say you're in a conflict situation. You bring that burden to God. You ask for him to work through it. Somebody has just been hounding you and making your life terrible. Would you ever pray like this to God? Uh, you start with verse one. It sounds wonderful. My heart exalts in the Lord. Yes, I can, I can pray like that. There is none holy like the Lord. There's none besides you. There's no rock like our God. Yes, you can say that. But then verse three, talk no, no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. I think that's very specific. 
What person would be in Hannah's mind as she says this? Is it not the other wife? The arrogance that she has had to endure, those darts over time directed towards her. Talk no more so very proudly. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Again, why would she say that? Well, often, in that time, people would look at a barren woman and draw conclusions from that. But the Lord is the judge over all. He knows her heart. By him, actions are weighed. And she takes reassurance and comfort in that truth. So I I think she starts rather specific and very personal in the first three verses. Verses four to eight are more general principles. The bows of the mighty are broken. Well, that's, that's going to come up later in the book. But the feeble bind on strength. You could say verse five is specific again with uh, Peninnah, but I think you see general principles as well. You have the Lord killing and bringing to life, bringing down to Sheol and raising up, uh, the swapping of poor and rich, raising up those from the dust. It, these are themes that are going to come back. And then verses nine and 10, looking towards the future. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. This is who God is. This is what God does. The adversaries are going to be broken in verse 10. I'm sure that you could find questions. Why didn't he answer that question? Why didn't he answer that question in the text? Again, we're taking that kind of just rising a little above the trees to try to get the big picture here. And this is a preview of what is to come. And it's from a woman who was barren and God met her request and now she's giving us tremendous testimony of faith in God. And then we end in verse 11. I think we end this pericope, this section, with Elkanah bringing his family back home. But the boy stays there in the presence of Eli, the priest. There's some very interesting comparison that's going to be made as the text goes on, but I'll stop our examination of the text with verse 11. Why this section from chapter 119 all the way through Hannah's prayer. Well, God, again, is choosing to work in specific people in specific ways as they continue their worship of God. Not all of Israel is worshiping God, only a portion. But as they continue that worship and as they continue to honor God as he's called them to do, within that context, God works in this family in a very specific way. So you see strong faith from Hannah At the beginning, you see that continue. And maybe one question we could ask ourselves from here that I think is fitting is just the pattern that we sometimes take of waiting to offer genuine worship to God, waiting to praise God until the end. I can't wait until I see what God does so that I can praise him. There's almost an order that happens in our minds. And maybe there's still trust that you're trying to give to God along the way, but here you have Hannah worshiping God before, during, and after. The worship continues. But even more pointed than this, 
Would Hannah's prayer be here without Peninnah? Would we have Hannah's prayer if she had not experienced over the years the darts from this other wife? Would we have this expression of faith, this experience that she goes through, this opportunity to show that she trusts in God and yet whatever God does there, she's going to continue worshiping God. And then would we have this amazing expression in in 10 verses without year by year being utterly leveled, hurt, wounds ripped open again as she once again sees before her all these children from Peninnah as she hears the words of attack, as she struggles even to eat the sacrificial meal. Do you see where I'm going with this? You might look at your life and say, why has God entrusted this to me? Yes, I have faith in Christ, and yes, I rejoice in the God of my salvation. I'm trying to honor him, and yet look what he has done to my life. I have no explanation to offer for why he has led me down this particular path. But believer, that is not the end. Perhaps that is just the beginning of another opportunity that God has handcrafted for you so that you have this privilege to express, to show your faith in him, whatever he does. And that faith by the end, can be precious. Those lessons that you garner from that trial might be lessons that stay with you for the rest of your life. Even broader than that, they might be lessons that encourage your brothers and sisters. They might be lessons that through your life the aroma of Christ spreads and maybe others then catch a whiff of Christ. Maybe some of them catch the smell of death, but maybe some of them catch the smell of life. Through your handcrafted trial that it, where God is forcing you and, and pushing you towards steps that you don't want to make, you don't understand what's going on, and yet the word guides you. And you say, this is what God has said, and so here we go. You would never have those lessons without the trials. I don't believe we would have this type of prayer from Hannah without a penina. And so see that God is starting, yes, with a woman who is barren, a woman who is broken, and yet who has not given up. She's a woman of faith who is clinging to her God And through her faith, through her continued worship, then God really does some amazing things. On October 1st, 2019, General Mark Milley began serving as the 20th chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It's the highest ranking, I'm saying things that many of you probably know, but highest ranking military officer. And then at the end of his term, just recently, towards the end of September, he retired. And what happened? Well, the military continued to exist. And they appointed the 21st 
chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Charles Q. Brown, Jr. Now, he ended his time by coming to the end of his arranged term. But the military continued, and that's what we expect from our military. People come, people go. They need to stay in place. Maybe in a similar way, there are some differences, though. Whether you respond to God's work in your life with faith or whether you respond poorly and you start to turn away from God, bitterness, maybe laziness, not wanting to go through it, there's all kinds of reasons we can use. Whatever you choose to do, God's plan continues. It's going to, to happen as God has designed. But I think it's our privilege and our joy to stay enlisted, to stay a part of it, to continue living by faith through whatever it is that God designs. And you might be terribly empty right now. You might be struggling continually with bitterness or anger against God. You might want to give up. You might have tried to give up yesterday and then somehow continued today only to face that same choice tomorrow. What will you do with the nothing that God gives to you? What will you do with that low point that he entrusts to you? He's still in control. And maybe you look at that and say, yeah, well, I brought myself to that. Yes, God is in control, but that was a terrible choice that I made. I still think there are principles that carry over into your situation. We take comfort in the truth that God is sovereign and he is working through all the affairs of life. And so what will you do with the nothing that you feel on the inside? What will you do with facing once again, over and over perhaps, your weakness, your inability, or the overwhelming nature of what you face? What will you do with that? And I think there is a wonderful example in 1 Samuel 1 and 2 of a woman who with her barrenness trusted God and with her barrenness worshiped God and with her barrenness and then seeing God provide, continued to serve God, continued to worship God and even then offered her son to serve God as well. Oh, there was a lament in there. I see lament as the sanctified version of complaining. You're, you're taking the heaviness of life and you're bringing it to the one who can handle that heaviness. So there's a lament there. They're pouring out of her soul. The tears are flowing. She's looking like a drunk woman after all. But it's all by faith. She was misunderstood by Eli. Her husband tried to help, but was insufficient for that task. But God heard, and God worked. And that is the pattern that we see over and over again. God is the God who hears. God is the God who is working in the lives of his people. You might not see the evidence of it yet. You might wish that his work looked very different than what is happening now. But God is at work among his people. 
And often, the starting point in your life, as he brings you to that low point, it's intentional. He wants you to know your weakness and your limitations. He wants you to know that on your own strength, it's not going to go well, so that you have this privilege and opportunity to trust him moving forward. Hebrews 5, 7 to 9, offers some helpful teaching. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Hear the description here from this preacher in Hebrews. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. How? With loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God as a priest, high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Isn't it amazing that Jesus also prayed with loud cries and tears? And God heard him, and yet what still happened? He still had to drink the cup of God's wrath. But God heard him, and he was faithful through that task. If this is the example of our Lord, ought we not to expect at times that such loud cries and tears might very well be necessary as we pour our heart out to God and we say, this is too much. It is too great. I cannot bear this. But this is where you have brought me. And so God, help me. If you turn back to then Hebrews 4, maybe it's on the same page. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Again, speaking of Jesus, since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Truth be told, God doesn't need me, doesn't need you in order to fulfill his plan. He is fully capable of doing all that he needs and designs to do. But he entrusts to us sometimes wonderful periods of life where we cannot help but praise God. But there are those other periods of life, they're not the cup of wrath that Christ had to drink. But my, do they hurt And yet God entrusts those times to us and we have the example of Christ. We have the throne of grace. And oh, people of God, when you get to those moments, it is not a moment to turn against our God. It is a moment to turn towards our God, to cling to him all the tighter and to say, God, help me. You are God. You are sovereign. You are perfect and wise in all that you do. I don't understand. Help me live by faith. That is your moment. That is your God-given moment to cling to your creator. 
And he is good, and he is working through all of that. And I think as we consider these things, it's only right to say, friend, maybe you have heard these things many times, but you never have truly turned to that God. And maybe that God has brought you to the lowest of times in life. And you keep turning right or left to try to meet your needs, and again and again you find that you cannot fix your problems. And yet God in his mercy allows you to keep going lower and lower and lower. And perhaps that makes you angrier and angrier over time. Yet the teaching of Scripture is that God is intentional when he brings people to that low point. And will you see that intention of God as meant to keep striking at you and hurting you? Or will you see that intention of God as meant to grab your attention and turn your eyes towards Christ so that finally you can have hope? See, we can take comfort in the truth that God is over all things. And I encourage you to go that direction. Or we can hear the truth that God is over all things and we can get angry by looking at those low points and blaming God. And please hear me tonight when I say if you go that direction, you will never be able to recover on your own. Turn to Christ. He is your only hope. Faith really is a blessed way to live. Difficult, perplexing, but it is the best way to live because God is over all things. He is working for good and for the glory of his name. And so may the people of God gather to that purpose of God that he is showing himself to be great. We have the privilege of being part of that. And may we encourage each other as we grow weak along the way at times when we see our frailty. You know, God is working. Let us praise him. God, thank you for the opportunity and privilege to open your word with these people. You know their lives. I've only learned perhaps the, the, the very top, just small portions here and there. You know the lives of these people here. And much more than that, glory to your name, much more than that, you know the details and you've been working in those details. And I plead that they would respond to the difficulties and challenges and low points of life with faith, trusting in you, bearing their souls before you, even in the pattern of Christ with loud crying and tears, because life hurts sometimes, and we cannot always make sense of it. May they press on to the glory of your name. We pray in Christ. Amen.